U.S. ambassador to the United Nations in New York is often a high-profile figure. Think of Nikki Haley or John Bolton or Gene Kirkpatrick, or going back further, Adlai Stevenson, Arthur Goldberg, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Andrew Young. U.S. ambassadors to the United Nations in Geneva tend to be less well-known, but they have important work they can do if they want to. Andrew Bremberg has been in that job for about a year, and I'm pleased that he's with us today to talk a little about what he's seen and what he's done. Also with us, Richard Goldberg, a former White House National Security Council official who spent a decade on Capitol Hill overseeing U.S. foreign assistance. Rich now serves as a senior advisor FDD and leader of FDD's International Organizations Program. Thanks to you two for joining us here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not Correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Ambassador Bremberg, again, we appreciate the chance to talk to you at an interesting moment. The 75th session of the UN General Assembly is getting underway virtually. And I neglected to point out in my introduction that you also represent the U.S. to a list of UN-affiliated international organizations uh, based in Geneva. And I'm curious, how many of them are there that you're trying to keep up with? Well, thanks. It's great to be with you today and to join you in FDD. As you said, I've been able to be here for almost one year. In terms of the organizations here, there are actually uh, over a hundred organizations, some of them that are directly affiliated and some that are not, that we still work with that are just based here in Geneva, that work in the multilateral world. Uh, also, many uh, NGOs and important organizations such as the Red Cross, Red Crescent that the U.S. has been a significant supporter of. So that's one of the other ones that's not directly U.N. affiliated, but th those types of organizations. That's a lot to keep up with. I'm sure you have some staff to know what they're doing and whether what they're doing is in the U.S. interest and whether you can persuade them to do more that is at least not against the U.S. interest. It's got to be challenging. Absolutely. No doubt about it. It's been a really eye-opening opportunity to serve the, the American people in my role here as ambassador. And I really enjoy diving into as many of these organizations as I can to understand the important role that they play, their foundation, and why they've been created and set up, and how we can best work with those organizations today to you know, improve the world or livelihood for, you know, whether it's Americans or people around the world, given our kind of 21st century challenges that we face today. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But one reason that Rich and I have been following your work is that a think tank focusing on national security, and, and one that's become increasingly concerned over the years about China. Credit is due to this administration, which really is the first to acknowledge that despite years of diplomacy, of concessions, of hopes and intentions, the fact is China's rulers have not become upstanding members of the international community. They haven't liberalized or moderated. Uh, they have global ambitions, and they see the U.S. as an obstacle and as an adversary. And one aspect of their strategy that Rich and I have been looking at 
has to do with controlling international organizations affiliated with the UN and others as well, perhaps directing these organizations to serve the interests of the Communist Party of China rather than some international community or some liberal rules-based order. And this is something that uh, you, perhaps uniquely because of this change administration, no doubt have been very intensely focused on. Yes, absolutely. That's been a huge part of my work since I've come here in Geneva. And and, and you're right. This administration, this president was the first to issue a wake-up call, both, I would say, domestically within the United States, but also internationally to other countries to understand the current situation we are in from a geopolitical perspective and recognize that we need to wake up and take specific concrete actions in different places to ensure that we have a open, honest, transparent, and free international order where countries can pursue their own legitimate interests that benefit their own citizens in a way that is not unfair or you know, unreciprocal to you know, taking advantage of other countries. And, and unfortunately, that is a pattern that we have seen grow over the last several years by you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party, that unfortunately, China has sought to use its growing influence and role in the international field and in multilateralism to actually try to change the scope and tenor and, and way in which some of these organizations work and really kind of tailor it not for a kind of universal liberal order that treats all member states equally and is meant to be a kind of rule of law baseline to help all countries advance from a security perspective, from a development perspective, and a human rights perspective. But it sought to change that structure in small incremental ways across organizations, find a way to actually serve the CCP, their direct party interest in helping establish and protect their unfortunately, you know, authoritarian approach. And this is the issue we see in, in, in multiple areas. And Rich, let me bring you in on this because you've been studying this. Ambassador Bremberg mentioned over 100 organizations in Geneva. There are other UN organizations in Vienna, Lyon, other places in Europe. Of the UN-affiliated agencies, of the international organizations, particularly the most significant, to what extent do you think that the Chinese are essentially uh, in control of it? We have a number right now that we're looking at, especially in the specialized agencies. Actually, under the ambassador's purview, I mean, you have the International Telecommunications Union, you have the Food and Agriculture Organization. They've just actually won a seat on the UN Board of Auditors. It's clearly a very concerted effort to take control when they can of international organizations if the rules allow them to. But I think we've also seen a case where this administration has pushed back. And in times when the Chinese are contesting elections, they've actually won in certain cases. And we have the person who waged that campaign with us. We do indeed. And I'm going to get to that. I just, just a, a number I've seen, see who's telling me if I'm wrong, is that there are of 15 most significant UN agencies, four are currently run by Chinese nationals. And those Chinese nationals are kept on a short lease by Chinese rulers. And this is an important point. Citizens of the U.S., of Britain, of France, first of all, combined, they lead about four significant UN agencies combined. But the other thing is that individuals from the U.S. and Britain and France, they regard themselves as international civil servants. They don't take instructions from their capitals. That's not Chinese. But I think what, what Rich is referring to, Ambassador Bremberg, is that Beijing recently targeted the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO. And that's particularly significant because I think it's fair to say China's rulers are the world's leading thieves of international property. I mean, it's 
on an unbelievable scale, maybe the biggest theft in world history, correct me if I'm wrong, and the United States has been their principal victim. So in this instance, you thought, well, we're not going to make it easy for them to take over the World Intellectual Property Organization. You fought and you won. Why don't you tell that story? No, thanks. Uh, that, that was one of the first issues that I had to address when I first arrived here in Geneva, is that there was an upcoming election for the new director general for the World Intellectual Property Organization, or WIPO, which is actually a very important organization. I'll identify two elements to that. One, this is a way in which we help the private sector access other countries' patent law and intellectual property protections. So this is extremely important to innovators around the world, particularly in the United States, to have a open, honest, transparent, but respectful of privacy and information sharing issues organization that can help facilitate um, protecting IP rights in multiple countries all at the same time. The proof of that is that this is the only um, international organization that really almost entirely pays for itself. That the fees and fee structure that, that the private sector pays virtually finances the entire organization. So it is a very important and productive organization. And there is an upcoming election for a new director general. And a number of member states were putting forward candidates. And I, I will confess, I was actually quite surprised when I learned that China had put forward one of their candidates. And certainly in the context that, that you gave of where they you know, already have their own nationals running multiple UN organizations, I thought this was odd and out of step. But then particularly as you raised in the context of WIPO and intellectual property, it is sadly a fact that now for decades that China is the world's leader, bar none, in intellectual property theft. There is not a close second point in that this was you know, deeply troubling. I'll reference that, you know, towards the beginning of this year, actually an important element of the president's phase one trade deal with China was that their recognition and acknowledgement that they would actually begin to enforce IP protections domestically in China. That was a very positive step, but committing to do so is not the same as having a record of doing so. So obviously we were very troubled by this prospect and we looked at other candidates that were put forward. And I, I'm pleased to say, and it was quite interesting, I'll provide this context. Not a large country, the country of Singapore had put forward a very well-qualified uh, individual that ran their domestic patent office and had a very compelling positive vision for leading the organization particularly in this time of innovation and new advances in technology. I mean, it is a really important space going forward. What I thought was very interesting was that if you think about Singapore, Singapore had actually been designated by uh, the U.S. Congress back in the 1980s as the piracy capital of the world, right? But this was a country that recognized the problem and had made drastic domestic changes and commitments now, recognizing now, Theft of intellectual property is wrong. 
We're going to police that. We're going to protect it. And we're going to become innovators in that space. And you actually had a record of decades of leadership from that country and from the individual Darren Tang, who is a leader in, in, in their IP space of actually advocating, promoting, and protecting intellectual property. So I'm happy to talk more about it, but I just wanted to give you that context. We had a long election season campaign that they have here for these roles. Quite fascinating to learn about. Happy to discuss more with you. Look, it's fascinating. I deserve enormous credit for that. I'm just curious to know, do you get any indication from the Chinese how disappointed, frustrated, angry they were that they didn't prevail in this case? Since they haven't in the past seen the U.S., uh, seen American diplomats sort of stand up to them that way. Yeah, I can say, you know, going through the actual election process, going through the kind of candidacy where candidates came forward, you had the final deadline, candidates spoke here in Geneva to two member states and kind of answered some questions in the kind of like an interview format. And there were very kind of ebbs and flows throughout this process where particularly early on, there was a broad consensus during the, the media perspective that there was this expectation that they thought that you know, once again, China would win. And we, you know, fortunately, I'm very proud from, from the diplomatic work that we did. And this was a very large team, kind of all of government approach that, that, that we deployed working with other countries to recognize we want to protect and really stand for the multilateral system the way it's been built across the level, but particularly here in WIPO, um, and recognize that we need to work together to ensure the protection of this organization and its mandate and the role it plays for the future. And we were quite actually successful in convincing countries that this was the best path to go. And what was interesting to me was that, in fact, when you actually came down to the vote at the very beginning of this past March, I believe you had the largest margin of victory. I think of any WIPO director general has ever had in any election previously. So that was really surprising to me in a, in a very positive way. And you know, from, from my conversations with the Chinese, it was something they clearly had not anticipated. I don't want to ascribe to any kind of anger, but it was, it was just a scenario I don't think they had anticipated. I'm going to direct this question first to Rich. Feel free to weigh in, Ambassador. The Chinese also can take control of these agencies in some cases without a Chinese national running them. And an example is and has been the World Health Organization. The head of the World Health Organization is an Ethiopian. His name is Tidros Hadhanam Gebreyesus. I think it's clear that despite the fact that the U.S. contributes 10 times as much to the World Health Organization as China does, and by the way, the U.S. contributes to the U.N. way beyond what China does. We can talk about that. But despite that, it's pretty clear that Dr. Tedros has always been very much Beijing's man. You agree with that, Rich? Yeah, I think the evidence is clear on that one. And I think that's what drove the administration's decision to say that you know, there's no reform here at this time possible. I'd be curious to the ambassador's views of sort of the future of WHO. And, you know, is this organization one that, that can be reformed? You know, are we out for good? Are there conditions, you know, that would allow us to, to return? And, and, you know, it's sort of a model for, for other agencies, perhaps in the future, where we see Chinese coercion or co-option or corruption, quite frankly, you know, very visible. Ambassador, you want to address that? Yeah, absolutely. And not surprisingly, I'm sure to you, this has been an area of deep concern and, a, and an area of primary focus of mine um, these last several months, basically since the start of the pandemic. And I'll just share a little bit of my background 
First, um, I, I previously spent eight years working at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So healthcare is an area I know very well. I was there during the 2003 SARS outbreak, and I was there and knew and worked with individuals um, that were the U.S. representatives to the 2004 and then the culmination in 2005 um, IHR, which lots of people are now hearing about for the first time, international health regulation reforms that were done you know, 15 years ago after the last time a novel disease appeared in China that was not clearly and transparently communicated about. We changed the, and strengthened the rules of the system to avoid that type of occurrence again in the future. This, this, this was not something that was lost on the world or the world of public health, and it was something that there was a commitment to reforming and strengthening. January and February of this year, as this was just beginning to unfold, we were concerned that uh, the organization um, risked the, the manner in which it was communicating, risked politicizing the global response to this virus. Mm. Um, and that was the concern that we raised and continued to raise. And unfortunately, uh, we did not see appropriate um, steps taken. And I have to say, you know, the, the, the president raised this issue, you know, multiple times. And this is something that the president raised and escalated and addressed in many ways. And while um, I've had many conversations with WHO's leadership, um, we, one of my personal frustrations has been their unwillingness to really engage in seeking to find a path forward to address the very real and legitimate concerns that we have raised. Um, and that is what has put us at the situation where we have now, at the president's direction, we have issued our notice of intent to withdraw. And in less than one year, we will complete our withdrawal from the organization. Um, and I think that's important for countries to recognize that, that that is happening. And I think the last part of your question of where do we go from here, U.S. is, again, by far the single global leader in global health. U.S. spending to support global health ends around the world dwarfs that of its, you know, of, 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 of its second place competitors. Um, obviously, in your context, it dramatically dwarfs anything that China puts up, which is not even close. So you, you said in the WHO context where our contributions are kind of 10 to 1, um, it's even more when you look at our global spending. So if you look at U.S. leadership in the global health space, this year in particular, um, we are going to set a record of, and I, I believe that we're likely looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of closer to $20 billion, I think, when all is said and done, of U.S. leadership and support for global health issues globally. Out, and some of that, much of that now outside of through a, a WHO perspective. I mean, for, for years, we have done um, important public health work like the PEPFAR initiative, where we have literally invested over $100 billion over the last, just last, you know, largely 15 years in helping um, millions of people live and survive the um, tragedy of HIV and AIDS in many developing countries. Look at the president's malaria initiative where again, U.S. leadership and support. Um, and these are programs that are done outside the WHO. So the question in terms of where we go from here is, um, you know, the, the president has said, he's continually asked, you know, will, will we ever go back? And he's always acknowledged that, well, if they get their act together, um, and, and that's the intent. I mean, and that's my goal in, in hoping and really fostering an opportunity, seeking a real kind of a dialogue 
with WHO so that they can demonstrate that they recognize the concerns and can chart forward a more independent and I like to say objective approach to doing the job because there is an important job to be done there. Um, I think it's important for WHO, I think going to a larger policy lens for a second, I think it's important for the multilateral system that the role of these organizations is to really help facilitate greater member state cooperation like that from my perspective that's why we have these organizations we, we we don't need them on their own they're great to have if they can serve as helping facilitate better member state cooperation better cooperation between countries than could be done on a one-off bilateral basis that's the promise of them the the, the key question is can they actually deliver it and, and unfortunately in the case of WHO this year, it has just demonstrably failed to do so. And that's been a, you know, a significant concern. You know, um, we were mentioning the UN General Assembly, 75th session, publicists calling it a historic uh, session. One of the things you might think the UN General Assembly would want to discuss was the origination of the uh, novel coronavirus. We believe it came out of a, a, a laboratory in Wuhan, China whether that was because of incompetence or for some other reason we don't know. I'll bet you a dollar it won't be discussed in the General Assembly uh, because China doesn't want it discussed. Or if it is, it'll be discussed by the U.S. and almost uh, nobody nobody else. Um, I'll I'll mention something else about the General Assembly. Perhaps the, the most important action it ever took in 75 years was in 1948 when it adopted the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights. Uh, the idea was that we have a, a, an international community agreeing on what human rights should be guaranteed and secured. I don't think we've gotten very far along on this. I don't think it's been a great success, but at this General Assembly session, we actually expect the General Assembly to vote China, Russia, Cuba, and Saudi Arabia on to the UN Human Rights Council, which is meant to be the main intergovernmental body for human rights in the UN system. Does that not have to be seen as a monumental failure? Thanks, and I really appreciate you bringing this up because this, the, the topic of, of human rights and the international approach to protecting and advancing of human rights has been another big priority of mine since coming to Geneva, and of course, um, after the US made the decision to leave the Human Rights Council for very good reasons. And you know, you, what, the, the point you raise right now about the upcoming um, elections for uh, countries to join the Human Rights Council in, in October, when, when I was briefed on what we expected to happen and how this was likely uh, to go, I, I really thought, was, is, is this some sort of cruel joke that's just meant to prove the, the, the president's decision to withdraw from to to leave the council right i mean it's like is this and of course like you know it's not that it's not funny right i mean this is human rights this is a fundamental basic human principle that again as you said that that we helped found it you know create from our cultural and philosophical background achieve a global agreement and understanding of this you know back 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 in 48 with the adoption of the universal declaration of human rights um and here we see people, you know, literally paying lip service to it at best, and I think, frankly, um, almost mocking 
um, by the the example we say. You know, I, I I'm 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 the first to say I'm happy to praise an organization or actions when it's warranted. And you know, last year, almost one year ago, there was an important resolution adopted by the Human Rights Council to address uh, the the worsening human rights crisis in Venezuela. And then the next month saw the election of Venezuela to the Human Rights Council. And you just have to think, really, is this is 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 this the the, the example we want to give in the world for how we're going to advocate and protect human rights? Um, so I think it, it is an area of real concern. Um, and I, 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 and I hope we can talk about this for, for, for a little while here, because it's something this administration, while it's been criticized uh, for the withdrawal from the council, uh, has not had enough attention paid to some of the actions taken. I mean, this is something that the president, you know, when, when, when he chaired the Security Council in New York uh, a couple of years ago, made human rights as a, as a national security perspective the centerpiece. We have put human rights um, as a very important piece. But this because we care about its importance and are not going to accept, from my perspective, a kind of watered down approach to talking about human rights. And I'll say most recently, um, Secretary Pompeo had established a commission on unalienable rights that, that just at the end of the summer released a really great report that I've had really great uh, opportunities to talk about with colleagues here in Geneva. And I, I commend it to you and, and, and the listeners to really give a great, insightful background and description of the U.S. view of human rights, which is in, inherently linked to our founding, our founding principles, our founding documents, and um, the role we played in helping draft and found and the agreements for the Universal Declaration. And it does a really great job laying that out um, and laying out the obvious kind of foreign policy uh, considerations that that presents. So that, that, that's been something that was just done, again, just at the end of the summer, and I've been using my diplomatic outreach here. Um, and I think it's an important way to move forward because we can't lose sight of these fundamental human rights. We have to find ways to work with other countries to advocate, promote, and defend. And I'm sure we can talk about some of those now um, because the situation um, – as, as 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 a small C conservative, I always look at through the lens that you know things can always get worse. And I, and I did say you know the human rights situation around the world is not great right now. I mean we, we and I'm sure we can talk about some of these. Um, and there's no guarantee that they those problems then magic, magically just get better. And there's always the possibility that they can get worse. And but for a concerted effort by member states by governments to raise awareness and then demand action and accountability, things will get worse. Rich, I'm happy for you to comment on any of this. And the ambassadors raised a lot of interesting issues, but there's one thing I do want to make sure we mention. I'll ask you, though we have withdrawn from the UN Human Rights Council, we American taxpayers continue to fund the UN Human Rights Council. That's a a thorny problem. Talk about that for a minute and anything else that, that, that strikes you from what the ambassador has been saying. Yeah, and I, I think this is really uh, the key point to understand the differences. The ambassadors talked about a huge success on the WIPO election where the United States engaged his mission, made it a priority to win that election, you know, understood that to be an important uh, foreign policy priority, and they were able to be victorious. And then you have the Human Rights Council where you know, there may be some voluntary contributions, but the, the main contributions coming from the General Assembly, you know, are going to come from, from the budget, no matter what we do. 
And the way that their governance is structured, it's such that you sort of get the briefing of, well, here's who's going to win these seats in these elections. And there's really not much you can do about it, even if you're participating, which does make it all, all the more so Orwellian. And so I guess, you know, my question is to the ambassador, do you see a difference in some of these organizations based on the governance structures? Just Are some just rigged against us, whereas some we can embrace and be involved in? And if, if we put the best foot forward and make it a priority of the U.S. government, you know, we can engage and, and, and do things that are good, not just for the United States, but for the international community. No, that, that's, that's a great question. Um, so I'd be the first to say no. I don't think they're rigged against us, is, is, is what I would say. And I think you know, our, our recent example with WIPO, um, I can talk about a couple others that show, you know, also we, we, we did help design these systems, right? Um, and, and I don't think that they're, they're rigged against us. The, the challenge is we can't do it on our own, and it requires other member states to cooperate with us. And th this is a point I've really made to many of my colleagues where they, for instance, value the leadership role the U.S. played in helping um, uh, preserve and protect WIPO and lead to a positive election outcome on WIPO. And at the same time, will lament from that perspective the unfortunate decision of the U.S. to leave the Human Rights Council. And I explained to them, like, you had the same U.S. in both cases. The only, and I understand why you like one outcome and not the other. I, the only difference in those two instances was you. <laughs> it was the decision and willingness of other countries to act, to partner with the United States and work towards a positive outcome that made the difference. That's our focus and priority. If, unfortunately, as we saw a couple of years ago in the case of the Human Rights Council, that, that was not a random decision made one day by the administration. You know. Um, Ambassador Haley um, had worked with member states for months, attempting to find a path forward and find a kind of sense of commitment to reform and standing for human rights that would make continuing to participate in the organization worthwhile, or, or at least, let's say, bearable. But, but that was not there. It required the action of other countries um, to stand for the principle, to stand for strengthen these organizations to fight for reform. I mean, that's what we were talking about in the context of the council is that we have to have reform. Um, so, and, and that's one where I, I think, not to get um, too philosophical, I think human rights poses a, a unique challenge in that multilateralism, and I, I liked math as a kid, I, I analogize it to multilateralism is a discussion of lowest common denominator. That's the lesson I remembered when I learned my fractions. And the issue is on any individual issue, we as representatives of different countries will come together and find a way to compromise and or agree upon a framework or an issue or something that's basically the lowest common denominator, right? That it, my, you know, when I come representing the U.S. perspective, I know what the U.S. ideal is, and we're not going to get exactly the U.S. ideal. We have to compromise some other way. And some other country are the same, and we end up in multilateralism with this lowest common denominator. The, and, and we can do that across the board on issue after issue, and it's not really a huge problem. I mean, we, we may not like it many times. We may not like the outcome. We may have higher expectations and standards, but the outcome is what it is. Human rights is different, though, because the problem is uh, 
the lowest common denominator globally today on human rights is just too low. There's no floor, there's no basement, there's no sub-basement. The lowest common denominator on human rights doesn't exist. We have member states that actively participate in the space of human rights that do not believe at all in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Right? And, I, and I think the challenge we face in the human rights space is that we, you know, we have a minority of countries that um, have a deep philosophical commitment to human rights the way we think of it and have governments that, like ours, try their best, to, but imperfectly, try our best to protect and advocate for those human rights in our own country. So you have that small group of countries. You have another small group of countries that I fundamentally believe do not believe as an intellectual philosophical matter, do not believe or wish to believe in universal individual human rights as we've articulated, um, and therefore use those opportunities to basically just frustrate the process and you know, fend off this idea of there's, there should be some sort of protection for individual rights. And then I think we come to most countries, where, where I actually think most countries are, which is to varying degrees, they actually do agree and do believe or want to, aspire to believe in, in, in our shared understanding of fundamental human rights, the, the, the inherent human rights that all individuals have, and have their own governments to, to a very wide, varying degree um, implement those policies and protections well or poorly. And, and those countries are the ones where I think there's a tremendous opportunity to work uh, both bilaterally on a one country to one country basis, but also in a multilateral setting to help promote and encourage better protections of human rights. The problem we have is in the system we have today, we, ha we allow a minority group of countries to basically attempt to, you know, that, that don't share the fundamental vision, fundamentally, to derail the process um, and do everything they can to harm a global effort for promoting, protecting individual human rights through their own either just purely authoritarian or ideological ends. It occurs to me, two organizations that, that are not well known and may not seem particularly interesting, much less dangerous to American interests, um, but as anodyne as they sound, they actually can be very influential and important organizations, particularly if they are directed by the wrong people for the wrong reasons. I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and this is one where I think it's been very clear um, that, that, you know, speaking of the International Telecommunications Union, where, you know, China specifically has been using the ITU and other standard setting bodies to try to promote its vision of a, you know, global surveillance state. Um, I mean, th this, this is around issues like facial recognition technology, video monitoring and other technologies that obviously they're already deploying and that will, particularly over time, allow them to monitor and suppress their own population and potentially others. Um, th this is where they you know, continue to try to threaten uh, the, the openness and freedom of the Internet and where you know, actions by this administration, particularly around our clean network program, 
are really important at pushing back and making clear that the world you know, faces a, a, a positive alternative, that we can protect and um, maintain a free and open internet that, that it is secure, um, but, but we have to make intelligent policy choices to do so. I mean, you're not going to accidentally end there. Um, you're going to have to make intelligent policy choices to do so and recognize when attempts are being made to create universal standards that are, you know, are, are, are putting, being put forward in a way to not just kind of unfairly preference one state-backed organization, but also create a framework to further advance potentially very um, almost you know, Orwellian uh, types of surveillance technology. Rich, what other agencies should have those listening to us perhaps be aware of and concerned about? We've seen uh, the International Telecommunications Union, which the ambassador just spoke to, the standards sort of writ large, whether it's ISO or others, where China is looking to expand its reach to, to be the standard-making leader of the world, make the world in its image. Uh, but we've seen other areas as well, the Food and Agriculture uh, Organization, the International Civil Aviation Organization, uh, the uh, UNIDO, uh, where uh, the Industrial Development Organization, where China has really sort of used its perch there to uh, sponsor events for its Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, but I'm also wondering from the ambassador, we, we talk a lot about China here. Are there other countries that you're seeing exploit the system? Is Russia playing a role? Are some of the state sponsors of terrorism playing a role? Who, who else should we be thinking about um, who's, who's not playing with our interests uh, at heart uh, in these international organizations? Yeah, un unfortunately, you're exactly right. I mean, um, China is not alone in, in acting as, I would say, a, a malign influence in these international organizations, uh, and that we have seen instances both where you know Russia, but also um, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, have all sought to um, you know, disrupt the, the, the approaches taken by these organizations to try to derail or tailor them for a particular end. I mean, and obviously we see this, particularly all those countries acting um, together, um, it, particularly in the human rights context that we just described. Uh, but, but, but it is really important uh, for, for both Americans, but also for citizens in other countries to be aware of what is happening. That it, what's important um, is that other countries need to start um, becoming more aware and understanding the potential threats and context for those and recognize that there's now a need for them to start acting as well. As we draw towards a close, I should ask you this question. What, are there, what, have, what have you seen as the best of breed international organizations? Which organizations have you come across there? You say, you know, they're doing an okay job and I'm glad, I'm glad they're there. They'd be worth supporting even if we, even if we were, went to a system where we had no assessed contributions, sort of a tax on the U.S., and we were yep. voluntarily contributing to these organizations, which would you say to the president, you know what, this one is, it's, it's worth a few bucks? That's a great question. And I'm also going to, after I list some of those, uh, I'd like to just talk about one important, I think, policy, an additional policy victory that, that shows how this can work. Um, so first, it, it's great, actually, that it requires very little from the United States, but, but WIPO for intellectual property that's largely, as I said, funded by the private sector is an important one. And I'm very confident with a new DG coming in place at the end of this month um, that that will continue to be an important organization for the U.S. to remain very actively engaged in. Um, I think the International Labor Organization is actually an important uh, organization given the understanding we have of international labor rights. 
Uh, this is something that came into account in the president's successful renegotiation of USMCA as part of the labor agreements of that. And also, you know, countering the kind of global supply chain issues and questions around uh, potentially forced or slave labor. Uh, I think the ILO has an important role to play. Um, I, I would also say that, you know, some of the humanitarian agencies here in Geneva, whether they are formally part of the UN system or not, um, are very important and being really good uh, partners that help that, that, that the United States can use to help provide humanitarian assistance. I mean, we are the most generous country in the world, and that is done both on a bilateral basis, but sometimes in a very important way um, through some of these UN organizations. And I should also say, as well as non-UN ones, I mean, this is where you have the headquarters of the International Red Cross Red Crescent that is truly an amazing organization in terms of its cost effectiveness um, and ability to really provide humanitarian assistance on the ground. Um, it's been you know, a, a great partner for the United States, and we should be proud of our record of supporting um, that and other organizations. Um, I wanted to come back to, as you said, a more kind of upbeat angle, um, not from an organization purely on its own, but showing that it can be done. You know, as a preface, you know, we you kept talking about we're celebrating the 75th anniversary, and you know. Mm. I was telling when the, the secretary general at the beginning of the year, when the you know, pandemic started saying, you know, this is the, the greatest global crisis the world had faced in its, you know, in the UN system had faced in its 75 years. And I always have a hesitancy for hyperbolic statements or saying something's the most or the least because, you know, only one example just proves it. And I thought about it and I said, in this case, I think he's probably right. And that 75 years without big reforms across the system is a challenge. Um, you know, as I said, kind of being a small C conservator and, and a big C conservative for that matter, you know, I don't want to just change things for the sake of changing them. You know, I like to stick to founding principles, founding documents, but it can't just be stuck in time. We have to work to, you know, to, to preserve and protect and reform and strengthen those organizations and that when it becomes you know, unwieldy or un, you know, unresponsive in some weird potentially unintended way, just for the passage of time, you, know, you have to reform and fix it. And what I view as the concern is that we have this failure to do so and the failure to recognize, you know, there are new challenges or threats in the 21st century. And what we need to do is take a proactive role, strengthen these organizations. And, and I, I know it can sound like a tall order, but this administration has actually successfully done it. Now, let me preface that many people will view this as a smaller issue, but it, it's a great, um, case study, I think, for how to, to help reform organizations. And I'm going to, you know, since, since, you, you know I'm talking to obviously a well-informed and think tank group. Um, I'll go here, which is the Universal Postal Union. Uh, that's a very sleepy, you know, smaller UN affiliated organization. Of course, it, it long predates the UN. I mean, it was, you know, founded over 150 years ago, uh, but it's now part of the larger UN family um, that deals with, you know, the international exchange of Mail. I mean, this is not, you know, rocket science. And, you know, why would this be a big thing? And what happened over time? And this is not to ascribe fault to the organization and the system. It had rules in place where, you know, to, to, to oversimplify, respective countries would reimburse each other through this what's called a terminal dues system for delivering international mail domestically in their own country, right? And you had rates for how they would do it. And Lo and behold, um, 
this system was never really built or designed for this thing called e-commerce, right? That, that, that sort of showed up and came along. Um, and this is something I worked on in my previous role when I was working for the president at the White House when I ran the Domestic Policy Council, was that we recognized that um, the U.S. Postal Service was losing money basically on every international package delivered because of this system did not fairly reimburse for the domestic delivery. And you, you'll, you'll, you'll never guess uh, what, what leading exporter and country uh, was, was basically making a killing off the subsidized uh, domestic delivery of foreign mailed packages and products. Of course, it was China. And, and, and of course, you know, again, this is not something bad about the system. It just had not been appropriately you know, adjusted and designed to handle this new thing called e-commerce that had come around. But we, but we saw this um, really having you know, really negative impacts. So there was a decision made by the president um, in the fall of 2018 where he announced that we were withdrawing from the UPU. Uh, we, we had made some overtures and attempts to diplomatically to see if this is something that could be addressed. The perspective we had been given was that people were going to ignore this you know, issue. So we announced we were going to withdraw. Um, and we could do so because we knew that we could you know, enter into you know, 193 you know, bilateral relationships with other countries to arrange for delivery of mail. And we knew in every one of those, uh, you better believe this administration was going to make sure that whatever we agreed to from a mail perspective, it was going to cover the cost <laughs> of delivering the package. Uh, and that was our intent. But I mean, our preference was to just fix the current system. And what, in, what ensued was, you know, again, this won't be surprising. The UPU, it normally only meets once every four years. I mean, fortunately, there aren't a lot of pressing policy issues that require the UPU to meet, meet that much more frequently. But given the context of the announced US, US withdrawal, uh, member states called what's called an extraordinary Congress of the UPU that met here in Geneva last year. And uh, go figure, um, by acclamation, member states adopted a reform that addressed our concerns. And I, I was pleased to be with the president. Uh, he presented a letter to the director general of the UPU withdrawing, rescinding mm -hmm. our notice of intent to withdraw. And we had successfully reformed this organization, um, which, of course, as other countries learned and understood over the course of that year, they, many of them were shocked and horrified to learn how actually their systems were actually suffering even worse off than ours. So we were able to, to educate other member states about why this was just an unfair system and needed to be fixed. And it was a successful reform. So I, I use that as a positive note because the U.S. does care. You know, I think there's this image presented that the U.S. or this administration doesn't care about these international organizations. I think the issue is we actually really do, but we want them to work. Right? And, and what that means is that we're committed to working hard to strengthen and reform them. But, of course, at the end of the day, if other countries aren't going to go along with that, well, we're, we're not going to necessarily remain or be part of an organization that we think is failing its purpose. But at the end, but I think really it shows that with U.S. leadership and cooperation from our partners, there's no doubt in my mind we can protect, strengthen, and improve these organizations. 
a success story. Most people, I think, listening or otherwise, uh, haven't heard the past. So I'm glad you've got you got that on, on the record. Uh, one thing I just have to add here is that the Secretary General of the UN also said that the uh, COVID pandemic crisis is the result of patriarchy, which I find puzzling and, and distressing. But I'll, I'll, I'll ask Rich for any final thoughts or questions he has before we, before we close shop for today. Rich? The only last question, and I appreciate the time, Ambassador, is to, to circle back earlier. You had mentioned in terms of the Interna- uh, International Telecommunications Union and WIPO as well, the involvement of the private sector and the role they play in some of these international organizations. You've talked a lot about outreach to other countries. You talk a little bit about your outreach to the private sector and the role they play in these international organizations and, and what others can do uh, to, to play a more constructive role. Thanks. That that's a really great question um, because we we do outreach on in in both directions there, and I'll explain. So one thing uh, I spend a lot of time doing is outreach within the UN organizations to help educate their leadership about the important and contribution and role that the private sector plays. Unfortunately, uh, too often in some cases there is a very um, suspicious or negative view or assumption about the role of the private sector. Uh, by some of these organizations. Now, I I was pleased to say uh, it it didn't take much convincing to promote and educate the private sector about the the importance of their involvement in some of these organizations. In the case of WIPO, uh, once many in in, in commercial industry became aware and recognized the actual importance of it for for them to positively want to engage and ensure there was a positive outcome because they obviously had a very huge stake um, in, in the fundamental direction and outcome that, that the WIPO would go. And the ITU, this, is, this has actually been a challenge where we have continued to reach out to the U.S. private sector to try to get more involvement and cooperation um, from them in these kind of standard setting bodies, which, of course, you know, we have a more innovative, vibrant system that has many more positives than negatives, but it's different than particularly how, you know, China and some others operate, where when you have this kind of, you know, government and military and civil fusion um, with, you know, a, a shadow of a difference between the few, uh, having your, pri- your, quote, private sector actively participate in uh, UN and multilateral standard setting bodies is pr- pretty easy to do. You just tell them to show up. Um, whereas for us, um, it's, it's, it's more of a question of getting uh, of persuasion and, and helping them understand the, the important contribution role they can play. Because what we really want to do is from a standards perspective, just in general, is we typically want to advocate for an approach to standardization that benefits innovation from the private sector. So having those leaders from those organizations, I would even add from U.S. kind of academia, um, come in and participate in these organizations really can add a lot. And it's something that we continue to uh, discuss with, with, with the private sector, um, particularly in the ITU space, that they can have a really important role to play. Um, and we really want to encourage their participation. Well, I got to say, I've, I've learned a lot. I suspect Rich knows lots more than I do, uh, has learned a lot too. And I know that members of our very special audience are much better informed and educated now than they were an hour ago. So thank you again, Ambassador, for being with us today. It's just been great to have you, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Likewise. Take care. It's great talking to you. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, 
or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Podicy.